0: Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning on this Thanksgiving week. Thank you for bringing the church uh, into this YMCA gymnasium. Really glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. I'm uh, excited that this morning we get to not only continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by King Jesus himself. We find it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This has been this 12-week journey uh, that we began uh, back earlier in the fall. And today, we conclude this sermon, and in many ways, it is this summation of all that Jesus has been teaching. He's trying to drive home. He's landing the plane. He's like, here's what I want you to pay attention to. And so many of you have journeyed uh, with us throughout these many weeks. Maybe this is your first week here and you just timed it perfectly. You're like, cool, I get the whole summary like in one message, right? So what what other end of the spectrum you're on, so glad that you're here, excited to dive into this been encouraged in what Jesus has been teaching us, the way that he has been challenging us, but the ways that he has been reminding us over and over again through his word that he is the king and that he's reclaiming his people. That's what we've seen throughout this series is that Jesus is gathered around and he's calling a people to himself. All right, even this morning, all right, as the church, you're like, hey, I'm going to church, or we're gathering as the church. The church, the language here is the called out ones. Like, you've been called out to gather here this morning. There's been this summons, and so we're following Jesus as he's forming this people. All right, I'm so excited that we get to look at Matthew chapter 7. We're gonna look at the concluding verses. So, Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 29. So, we wake our way through this. We want you to have this in front of you. You don't need to hear my thoughts or opinions. The transformation happens. The power is in God's word. And so I'd encourage you, if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you did not, there are paperback Bibles on the two black uh, tables in the back there. You can get up, you grab one of those. The other option you always have is to go to cpwp.life on your phone. Swipe over. The second card will say message notes. The text for this morning is there. There's space. You can actually add notes, you can take notes, email them to yourself, uh, that sort of thing, and anything that's up on the screen will be there as well. And so I'm gonna go ahead and read this as the concluding words to what has traditionally been called the Sermon on the Mount. And I wanna invite you, as I read God's word, would you go ahead and stand? Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse 24, it says this, "'Everyone then who hears these words of mine "'and does them will be like a wise man "'who built his house on the rock.'" And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You might be familiar with this story. It's something that we hear uh, similar stories, accounts of every now and again living in the Sunshine State. Uh, but on November, I believe it was November 14th of 2013, a few years ago in Dunedin, Florida, a man by the name of Michael Dupree was awakened early in the morning. Um, his daughter came running into him and his, his wife's room claiming that somebody, dad, somebody's trying to break into the house. She was hearing all these strange noises. There was all this commotion. And so startled, it's, it's early, the sun hasn't even come up yet, My gets out of bed and is wondering like is he gonna have to fight somebody is he gonna have to kick an intruder out of the house is he gonna need to call the police he's not quite sure he's probably just kind of waking up and as he's walking out into his house he looks out and he notices that their screened-in porch is looking a little odd it is literally starting to collapse down into the earth like it's literally being swallowed up by the earth and so he realizes in that moment oh it's a sinkhole, right? And so he immediately gathers his family, gets them out of the house, calls the police. And within a few hours, this hole that had begun just kind of at the corner of his porch began to spread out and it became some 75 feet wide and 50 feet deep. And he's like, oh, we have lakefront property now, right? Like it's not what exactly he was, he was hoping for. And as it spread, it began to just swallow up parts of his house and his neighbors. I mean, you can see some of the, this picture here, like part of the destruction. And so you can imagine, it's like, oh my goodness, everything, all right? You've built your life here, all right? You've got this home, you're in this neighborhood, all the memories, all of that. And what you thought was solid ground, there's this foundation, it begins to actually give way and everything begins to collapse, And it's interesting, isn't it? This is this sort of imagery that Jesus chooses to conclude his sermon with. He's been laying out all this for several chapters now. And he says, hey, if your house is built on sand, if it's not the foundation, if it's not the rock, great will be the fall of it and it will collapse. And he says this in love because he doesn't want your life and my life and anybody's life to end up like this. And so there's a couple things, I think, with this as we look at it. I mean, one takeaway might be Florida was never meant to be inhabited, all right? And so uh, we should get out while we can. But besides that, uh, there's this imagery here of like, what would it look like to build your life upon something that actually lasts, something that is solid, this rock? And so look with me, again, at verses 24 to 27, and we see this parable that Jesus tells about both the construction of two homes and the ensuing chaos that follows. Because both homes endure the storms, don't they? The description that is used of both homes and the storms that come are the exact same language, but there's some very subtle but important differences that we see here. And so again, let me just read it so it's fresh on our mind. 24 says this, everyone who then hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, Rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. And the language there for foolish is literally the word where we get the word moron from. All right, you'll be like a moron if you do this, is what he's saying. All right, so built his house on the sand. Jesus not concerned apparently about our self-esteem. He's like, listen, don't be a moron. Here's the call here. All right, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And so Jesus is asking us to consider, not just the people back then a couple thousand years ago, but you and I as we are gathered in a gymnasium in Winter Park, Florida, all right, in 2019, in the week leading up to Thanksgiving here, he's asking us to consider like, hey, what kind of home are you constructing? What kind of home are you building? And the language that is being used here, all right, is, is you kind of see in that picture, for the most part, we're talking about identical looking homes on the outside, all right? They both have the same roof line. They both have the chimney. They both have the front porch, right? There's very, there's all these things you can picture that are similar. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's a call here to listen to my word. So he's, right, if he's using this imagery here of the two houses, what he's saying is, this is a summary here, as he's concluding his sermon, he's like, I want you to think back with me over what he said in chapter five, six, and throughout seven. What kind of home are you constructing? The reality is every single person, we looked at this last week as Jesus laid out, there's, there are two paths. There's the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. There's the narrow path, the narrow gate that actually leads to life. He's driving this home, he just kind of keeps hitting it from different angles here, out of love for us. And he's saying, In the same way everybody's on a path, he's saying everybody is constructing a home. And all of us have been made, here's what I need you to hear, for the presence of God. We were placed in a home, our original parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1 and 2, in the garden, walking with God, perfect communion with God, our Father, perfect communion with the creation, with one another. Like, everything is harmonious and beautiful. It is this true sense of home that we were created for to experience. But ever since the fall, right, we've been looking to other things, trying to get back to Eden, thinking, will this thing satisfy well, if I earn this money, if I get this approval, if I get into this school, if I get this job, if this person just would pay attention to me, whatever it happens to be, there's this longing, this restlessness. As St. Augustine said, right, our hearts are restless until we find our, our rest in God. We're trying to get back home. And so there's this question, like it asks us to get What kind of home are you constructing? And what Jesus does as he lays out this imagery i think it's important we've got to see this that these two houses then may not be what you actually think because i think there's a simple way to read this that misses the point of what jesus is talking about because as we look at this, these words right he kind of he lays it out if you hear the words of mine and you do them you'll be like the man who built his house on the rock solid foundation all of that and so what we want to do, the temptation of the human heart is to right away divide things and say, okay, if you, the good people are the ones that obey and therefore their house is built on the rock and everything will stand. So the world is divided into good people who obey or bad people who disobey. And so you're like, okay, I got to make sure I'm in this camp. Maybe you feel this confidence. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the good people who obey. Here's the problem, right? You can't land there. All right? if you're actually reading your Bible, if you actually pay attention to what Jesus says. It's not the good people who obey and the bad people who disobey. The reality of the situation, we're all bad people. Welcome to church, right? That's what Jesus has been communicating. Go read like Ephesians chapter two, the opening words and, and God is laying out like you who were alienated, you're hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Like I said, he cares little about puffing you up and making you feel like you're awesome and just building your self-esteem. He's actually wanting us to see the reality of the situation. So when he talks about these two houses, he's like, "Listen, the obedient ones. All right, that, that's it's your obedience is not the rock." There's this tendency to want to divide the world up so we can kind of know, do we belong? All right, are we? And it's driven by that sense of we want a home, but we go about it all wrong. And so what we have to see here is if these are Jesus's concluding words. The houses are not communicating good people who obey and bad people who disobey. The reality is we're all bad people that deserve to be separated from God. Like our life is going to collapse. Like that's what you and I deserve. That's what you and I, even in our best deeds, what the Bible calls like these filthy rags, that's our, our best attempt. It's like, oh, here, I give you these. And it's like, really? Like that's all we contribute and so as we look at this, one of the things I think that will help make sense of this and why Jesus ends this sermon the way that he does, and he's talking about two paths and there's two different teachers as we looked at last week, and here there's these two houses. We should go back and look and say, hey, does this show up in other places? Does this idea, and I think if we go and we study, and we're not going to preach through you know, all 12 weeks now again, but I just want to highlight a couple things to you. What we find is that throughout this sermon, Jesus has been contrasting two groups of people throughout. And it's not the good people do the right things and the bad people you know, who, like the, uh, who do the, the wrong things that are disobedient. Rather, what he's saying is there's all kinds of people that seemingly are doing the right thing, but we're actually not getting to the layers kind of beneath the surface. And so even if we were to flip back for a few pages, if you've got your Bible, you can do this. I'll just highlight a couple of them, all right? Like in Matthew chapter six, here's what Jesus does. He says, beginning in verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, hey, when you give to the poor, he's not contrasting the groups of people who don't give to the poor and those who give to the poor. There's an assumption here, People are giving to the poor, and he's not saying, okay, cool, you've got a house on the rock because you're doing this. What is he saying? No, no, no. It's possible to be giving to the poor, which we're called to do as the church, as followers of Jesus. It's part of what it means to be the called-out ones, that we don't live for ourselves anymore. But he's telling us, listen, there's these two groups, and there's the ones that are built on the rock, the foundation that is Jesus and his life and his obedience and his righteousness and his perfection, or there's you doing it thinking you're going to earn the affection, the approval of God, and it leads to despair. It leads to destruction. It leads to your life being swallowed up and coming to an a, a abrupt crash, and it's just over. So he's contrasting, right? Hey, when you give, it's not those who give and those who don't. He's saying, everybody's doing this. How are you Doing it. Like, what is your approach? What's your posture? What's the heart beneath it? He continues and he begins to talk about prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite. So it's not the good people who pray and the bad people who don't pray. It's not the good people who give and the bad people who don't give. He's saying, no, no, they're both doing this. But the contrast is some are doing it thinking that they're building their resume, their righteousness before God, and others are like, no. Jesus has saved me. Jesus has rescued me. There's nothing that I contribute to this thing except for my sin, and Jesus has paid for that. And now I live open handed. I am generous. I pray and I cry out to God, not because I'm trying to earn the affections of God, because I am just so utterly dependent on Him. I know that everything comes from Him, and He is the God of the universe who cares about me, and I'm going to pray to my Father, all of that. He continues and he's like, and so when you fast, right? Again, it's not the good people who fast and the bad people who don't fast. And Jesus is like, hey, build your house on the rock, be obedient. You got to pray, you got to give, you got to fast, you got to do those things. That's not what he's talking about, all right? And so what we have here for Jesus is he's asking these questions of what kind of home are you constructing? And the two houses, like he says, may not be what you think if you leave here, if you would conclude the Sermon on the Mount and be like, okay, I've gotta do the right thing, I gotta make sure I'm building my house on the rock, you're on a pathway to death. It will crush you. You won't be able to keep up with it. There's not enough good that you can do to tip the scales in your favor. So what Jesus is saying here is it's actually what is unseen that actually matters, the foundation. So you look at those homes, right? One is on sand. One was built, it looks beautiful and impressive, and there's landscaping, and there's the, the playground set, and the nice front porch. You can imagine just hanging out there, inviting friends over, it's great. But there was some hasty work that was done because they did not actually dig beneath the sand to get down to the bedrock, to get down to a firm foundation. It was just constructed, and when the storms come, it all begins to crumble. But not so the one who's made their foundation, Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. This is what Paul would speak of in Ephesians chapter 2. I referenced the beginning of chapter 2. Here's where these words go eventually in this chapter. He's beginning to describe us as the called out ones, as this people. And he says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens? Meaning you're no longer homeless. You don't, you're no longer searching for a place you belong. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. There's this home. Built on what? On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The prophets, the apostles, what were they doing? They were pointing to Jesus, and he's the cornerstone. He's the true foundation. He's the thing that holds it all together. And it says, "...in whom the whole structure being joined together grows then into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." This is the language that Paul would use to describe us as the church. How amazing is that? That God is in the business of building a home. It's not you going and building this home. It's rather he has built this. And it's a home that is built on the foundation of God's grace, of his mercy, of his pursuit of us who are wayward, who are sojourners, who are exiles, who are wandering in the desert, trying to get back to Eden on our own. And God sends his son to say, hey, come follow me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Paul would also say similar things, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, for, one can lay a for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you're trying to build your life upon anything other than Jesus, it may look impressive for a season, but eventually the storms of life, and this is what we see, the storms, they always reveal. They always showcase for us, okay, what is rock and what is sand? Because it's possible to do a lot of religious things, to gather in the church, to participate, to serve, to give. You can do all of those things. And I hope you participate in those things. But as we've seen throughout this sermon, not just this morning, but through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying it's possible to do all of that and be building a life on the sand because you're not trusting in the finished work of Jesus. You're thinking it's up to you. And you're on a path of this religious this religious path, all right? We need to lose that religion. We need to let that die. That needs to be put to death because it actually doesn't bring life. Storms always reveal then. And if you've lived longer than five minutes, you know that storms are coming, right? You might not be in one right now, but you've endured them in the past. You know that they're coming. There are gonna be things that will showcase for us. Hey, have I put my trust in Jesus? He's the foundation, he's the rock your obedience is not the rock if that's what you're building your whole life on all right that man that is a scary place to be a few chapters later in in the same gospel of matthew chapter eight he describes the disciples it says when they got into the boat maybe you're familiar with this story his disciples followed him and behold so here's these fishermen many of them they're getting into a boat this is old hat for them they do this all the time all right they get in the boat, but then there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Mark chapter 4 gives us some interesting details, same story. It's like Jesus was asleep on a cushion. You guy's got a pillow, he's settling in, all right? Doesn't seem phased at all by the waves, all of the, these things. And they went and they woke them, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And again, in Mark, they're like, Lord, don't you care about us, right? They just like, they're panicking, they're freaking out. They're, they're believing all kinds of lies from the enemy that somehow God doesn't care for them. Now, I wish I could say, man, those crazy people, they had Jesus in the boat with them, right? Jesus was with me this week, and very often my heart was crying out, Lord, don't you care? My guess is your week, as you think about circumstances, your heart had a propensity to cry, that, cry out to that. Like, we're going we're gonna to die, all is lost, God, don't you even care? All right, we're kind of playing this martyr or whatever it happens to be. And Jesus is there just sound asleep, and he said to them as he wakes up, Why are you afraid, Oh, you of little faith? Then he arose, and look at his authority here. He rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? In this moment, the disciples, those who have traveled with Jesus, they've heard Jesus taught, they've been around Jesus, they're still missing the point. They're trusting in themselves. They're not trusting in Jesus. And Jesus like, I have all authority. I Me mean, you want to look like a crazy person, go try this. The next time a huge Florida storm rolls out and you just run out into the backyard and like, I command you to stop. Your neighbors will be like, okay, that dude has lost his mind and my guess is it's not going to stop, right? Like, but Jesus, totally different story. He has complete control. And so this leads us to this conclusion then. As he's been contrasting, he's like, what kind of home? Are you going to trust in my perfect obedience, my perfect righteousness, or are you thinking you can do it on your own? Because that's going to come crashing down the scriptures tell us again and again like our wages what we earn is sin and death like that's all we actually have to offer but jesus comes and gives us his righteousness there's this beautiful exchange that takes place now look then at the claims as jesus has been making this look at the response to his claims verses 28 to 29 it tells us how the people respond and when jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Here's what this means. The scribes of that day, the religious leaders, they loved to get together and they would open up, all right, the scrolls, they would open up what we know as the Old Testament and they would make commentary on it, all right? And that's fascinating to do and that's what I'm engaged in doing, like all of that stuff, but Jesus is an entirely different thing. He doesn't come and make comments. He's not writing a blog post of like, here's what I think about these things or commenting on social media. Well, maybe it's this. He comes in, the one who can rebuke the wind and the waves and calm the seas, he comes in and speaks with all authority. And there is something in this that is radically different. He is talking and speaking and making claims that they've never heard anyone make before. And it tells us they're astonished. It doesn't mean that all of them believe in Jesus, but it stirs something in them. They're like, this is different than anything we've ever heard. And so as this sermon comes to a close, this Sermon on the Mount, though we have to ask ourselves, like, hey, are you astonished? Like, if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, as an apprentice to Jesus, are you continually astonished by him? As you study him, as you hear his, his words, or do you default, both if you're a Christian this morning, but also somebody who might not be a follower of Christ, do you default into being like, yeah, he's mildly interesting, or maybe he's just a great teacher? Hear these words of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, I am trying here. So he's desperate to try here. He's like, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. The really moronic thing, again. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. You'll hear that all the time. And he's like, no, no, no. I don't but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. They're astonished. And some find him intriguing and they're just wanting maybe to learn a bit more and there's curiosity But then there's an astonishment that leads to worship, that leads to praise, that leads to adoration. I pray that that's where you're at this morning. As you study the person and work of Jesus, not just to say, oh, he's a great moral teacher, but to understand what he's been communicating throughout is the king is on the scene. God has taken up residence. God has become flesh. God has entered into this story to pursue us, to get us back so we might actually have a home. We might actually have a place. We might actually belong. As we enter in in a week from now, even in the Advent season, may these words ring in our minds and our hearts as we even think about the first Advent, the incarnation of Jesus. Philippians chapter two describes this. This is astonishing, and I confess that I know this stuff intellectually, but it doesn't always grip my heart. There more often than not, my heart is like, God, do you not care this? That? And it's like, whoa, what if I step back for a moment? And realize all that God has done for me, that God has withheld nothing from me, that God Himself took on flesh and blood and entered into the mess of my life, that He entered into the mess of your life to pursue. This is Philippians chapter 2. Look at these words beginning in verse 5. Paul's encouraging this, this humility that we see in Jesus. And He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which belongs to you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now look at the description who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not come here just as a man. It's the God-man. He's fully God and fully man. Now, he didn't claim his right. He was willing to forego that, to enter in to our life, to be born in the most humble of circumstances, to be, to be born in Bethlehem, to be born. Like, you know the story, right? It's what we're getting ready to enter into this season. But what it's communicating to us is Jesus, all power, he's fully God, and yet he willingly empties himself and he comes into this place, onto this earth, to do what? To die the death that you deserve, that I deserve. His obedience took him all the way to a cross, My disobedience should have led there. His obedience went there to pay for my disobedience. Your disobedience our rebellion. And now look at how Paul continues. He says, therefore then, in light of all this, God has highly exalted him because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the tomb. The tomb is empty. He rose again. He ascended into the heavens. And this is where it tells us is happening right now. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow and heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, yes, there's God the Father, but there's God the Son. And it's this claim, what Jesus has been laying out here is not just pithy sayings, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, all of that. All right? We can't make him those things. He's been claiming he is the king, he is God incarnate, he has come on the scene. Play this out for me just logically for a moment. Maybe you're like, I don't, can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or maybe other people. Like, what Paul is advocating for here, what the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul to write to us that we could actually look at this this morning, is that Jesus has been put back where he rightfully belongs. He's the God of the universe, and there's a call here to worship. God would never call us to worship anyone or anything other than himself. So either Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God, as Lewis talked about, and he must be worshiped as Lord. Or the Bible, the great apostle Paul, is asking us to commit the greatest act of idolatry ever. Go ahead and worship this mere man. He had a lot of good things to say. That can't be it. He's the God man. And he's changed everything. He's the king who's reclaiming his people. He's the king who's calling us out and saying, come and follow me. I will take your burdens. I will actually give you rest. Come and be an apprentice under me. And so there's where the sermon ends. But what I love is this is one part of the story that is told, this sort of biography of the life of Jesus. As Matthew is telling the story, we'll conclude this way here. I wanna look at one more passage. Jesus is telling us, build your life on the rock. He's the rock, he's the foundation. A few chapters later, if we were to journey into Matthew chapter 16, all right, you're welcome to turn there, but I'll have it up on the screen here in a moment. We see a confession, an identification of, okay, this one who is making these claims, Jesus, some of his disciples are starting to get it. Not perfectly but they're starting to confess. In fact, there's a confession that Peter makes about Jesus, his identity, and it gives us in this context this confidence about who we are then as the called out ones. Jesus didn't give us this just to analyze and to look at. He gave us these things, told us he's the foundation so that we would respond then in obedience, not to earn anything, but be the people, the kinds of people who can turn the other cheek, the kinds of people that can give from a a generous and cheerful heart, the kinds of people that are praying and are dependent, the kinds of people that understand their poverty of spirit, those kinds of people, the kinds of people that don't judge and condemn, but rather love and in love can even bring correction where it's needed. He's calling us to be those kinds of people, but we can't do it unless we know jesus as the rock jesus as the messiah jesus as who he claimed to be and so in matthew 16 look with me verses 13 to 15 says this now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is and they said all right well some of some of the talk is that you're john the baptist others say elijah others say you're jeremiah or one of the prophets and then jesus said okay Let's take it out of the realm of those people out there. Who do you say that I am? And this is a question that we have to wrestle with. Jesus would want us to wrestle with this. It's what the Sermon on the Mount has been communicating, all right? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the God-man? Is he your Savior? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? Who do you say that I am? And we're going to get Peter's response here in just a moment. But what's fascinating to know is this. Jesus is going to tell them in just a moment, like, Peter, on your confession of you're identifying who I am on this rock, I'll build my church. But there's a really fascinating detail that we can read through this. Maybe some of you are familiar with this, but I think it's helpful to come back to. If we're going to think about our calling as the church, what does it look like to live lives on the rock and then be an obedient people? Not to earn anything, but just living as kingdom people. At this point, most scholars believe these disciples, they're either late, maybe like late teenage years, all right? They are not the best of the best. Most of them have been called out of everyday trades. They're not the brightest, all right? They're not the influencers, the the, the powerful, all right? They are a group of like this ragtag group of young men that Jesus has called and they've been following him. And then he takes them, it tells us this detail, to Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, as they are standing outside of this magnificent place, Jesus asked this question in this place to say, who do you say that I am? Let's talk about my identity in this place. Not in the comforts of the temple, not back at the synagogue, not in their village, he took them to Caesarea Philippi. And for you, you're like, okay, I don't know. Like, that's not that big of a deal. It's just this old ancient place. No good Jewish boy would ever gone there. They would have wanted to. And mom and dad would have been like, if I ever find you in Caesarea Philippi, you're grounded for life, all right? It was that kind of place. The debauchery, the just people are just bent on like, let's see how many commandments we can break. The, the, the paganism that was rampant there. This is Caesarea Philippi, all right? They had a slogan. What happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi, right? It's like that kind of place, all right? And so these young group of Jewish boys following their rabbi Jesus end up here. And it's in this place. And the fascinating thing, Caesarea Philippi, was there's this gigantic structure of rock. And here's what it looks like in in present day. now, if you were to zoom in, you can Google this and go find this. This was a cave, all right. And in there in the rock, it's a little hard to see in the pictures, but you can maybe see these little uh, like uh, archways and things. And in that would be placed all sorts of statues to the gods. And the God of that area was a God named Pan, who's half man and half goat, and he was the God of fertility. And so there at this place where the water used to flow in and out of this particular cave, all right, the God Pan was worshiped. Now, take what you might imagine about what I've just told you about Caesarea Philippi, and then this goat man Pan is the the God, all right, and then debauchery and fertility and all this, let your mind run for a moment and then bring it back, okay? And just think from, like there was all sorts of practices that were vile and wicked and a good Jewish boy would be like, oh gosh, like, okay, I can't unsee that. Like there would have been all kinds of those things happening. Sacrifices that were made, human sacrifices that were made, the the sexual like just uh, dysfunction that was all these things were present in Caesarea Philippi and celebrated there. And where they stood, when Jesus is making this or asking this question, was literally believed to be the gateway to the underworld. That cave was believed to be like where the spirits would come and go. That was part of the pagan belief in that place. and that's why they would offer sacrifices, and they would do all these things to sort of appease the, the god pan. They wanted their crops to grow. they wanted to be able to have children, all of these, these things. They were hoping their life would flourish. But there at that rock and in that place was believed to be the entryway to the underworld. So that's some historical context. So in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus talks about building a life on the rock, on the foundation. And now this word rock shows up again. Look at the response then in 16 to 18. Simon Peter replied, Jesus, you're the Christ. Meaning you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And some down through the centuries have interpreted this as, well, Peter is the rock and that's what his name means and all. he's the first pope and it's not true. Like that's, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying Peter's going to be used. But within a few verses, Jesus is also saying, Get behind me, Satan. So we kind of know Peter doesn't have it all figured out at this point, right? What he's saying is your confession on this rock, that's the foundation. You wanna have a life that doesn't crumble, you wanna have a life that flourishes, your life needs to be built upon what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, he's coming back. Are you trusting in him? Or are you trusting in your religious good works that won't lead to anything but death in despair, depression, Jesus invites you to a life that's on the rock that is him. But then there's also this fascinating detail here and he says on this rock, on this confession, I'll build my church. While they're looking at what? A giant rock outcropping. While they're looking at a place that was believed to be the very passageway to hell. And Jesus says, oh yeah, on this rock, on this confession, in places like Caesarea Philippi that are wicked and vile and no one would ever expect the gospel to go forth in that kind of place, the gates of hell will not prevail. And don't think the gates coming after us as the church, gates don't move. We bust through the gates, not in our power, not in our strength, because we're with the king and the king is on the march and the king is reclaiming his world and he's empowered his people as Christ follows with the Holy Spirit. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're gathered here this morning and you're like, I feel weak and incompetent. I don't have anything figured out and I'm not as far along in my walk with God as I'd wanna be and I'm right there with you, but we're not focused on us. We're not the foundation. We're not the rock jesus is and like his disciples we get to follow him and we get to storm the gates of hell with king jesus and he's saying i'm going to reclaim my world even in places as lost in his wicked accessory of philippi and if he can do that just think about your neighborhood your family your place of work the neighborhood you live in the school that you attend The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus and his church. This is what the Sermon on the Mount has been communicating, that the king is on the move. He's reclaiming his people. He's calling us out. He's telling us to build our life, to trust in him. He's the foundation. He's the rock. He's the Messiah. You're not the Savior. I'm not the Savior. Jesus is. And so have you trusted in him? And just imagine, we'll close with this. Just Think for a moment if we as a people individually and collectively were centered on building our lives upon the rock that is Jesus. That we trust in him for our identity. We're not looking to our job. We're not not looking to relationships. We're not looking to how much money we have or the trips that we can go on. Our deepest joy and satisfaction is in knowing Jesus. We're astonished that the God of the universe would reach down and say I'm going to pluck you out of hell and I'm going to bring you into my family. You didn't have a home. You were homeless and I've given you a seat around the table imagine if we were astonished by that the sort of impact that we could have as a church not because we're awesome but Jesus is awesome we serve and we worship an awesome and incredible God imagine the sort of transformation if he can build his church in places like Caesarea Philippi Winter Park Castleberry Maitland Winter Spring whatever it happens to you wherever you come from right apparently it's not that big a deal like he can move He can do it and he wants to work through us as a group of people that are following him. We won't do it perfectly, he knows that, but he invites us he says, will you trust me? I'm the foundation, he says, I'm the rock. I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised one. I'm the one that died the death that you deserve. I'm the one that rose three days later, he says. I'm the one who ascended into the heavens. I'm the one who's going to split the sky and come back and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and I'm going to take up my residence with you. I've been looking for a people. You were invited, and he's inviting more people to get in on this, and we get to play. We get to participate. We get to actually imagine what it would look like as the king reclaims his world. so we're going to close not only this morning, this sermon, but this series out. And I'm going to just lead us in just a short moment of some guided prayer. And so after this, we'll continue in our service with communion. If you've got elementary kids, you can go get them in a moment. Let's go before the Lord in, in prayer. And I'll just give you a couple of prompts, just where you're seated. All right, just to take a moment and just pray. So Father, we thank you that you are the good God, that you're the father that would be willing to send your son. And Holy Spirit, we know that part of your role is that you lead us in repentance, that you bring conviction. And so, Lord, I ask that you would hear the prayers of your people right now. Help us to see and to confess openly where we've tried to build our life on our obedience, thinking that it's up to us. So take a moment now just confess your attempts at religious behavior of self-justification. Jesus, you tell us that if we come and we confess that you freely, that you offer your grace and forgiveness, you paid for it all on the cross. And so I ask Holy Spirit right now, and not only you, the one that brings a conviction and leads us in that confession of repentance, you're also the great comforter. And you remind us of what we get to celebrate, how we were dead and we've been made alive that we were part of the old creation, now we're new creations through the finished work of Jesus. And so take a moment now, give praise and thanks, be astonished that Jesus would rescue people like us. know that you are faithful you've continued to build your church down through the centuries you're going to continue to it you don't need us but you've chosen to work in and through us and we are so grateful and you're looking for a group of people god that in response to your grace would commit to to want to live for you and for the father's glory so that we might experience the joy that we've been created for so, Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would lead amongst us, that we collectively would be a people that are committed to following the way of Jesus, the way of the King. Spirit, I pray that you would bring to mind specific areas in each person here, God, in each of our lives. You know our stories better than we know our stories ourselves. Would you show us those places where we haven't relinquished, we haven't submitted, we haven't acknowledged you as Lord? May we commit to your lordship to come under your rule and reign that we would give everything of who we are in response to the reality Jesus that you held nothing back that you gave us all of who you are your perfection your righteousness you gave it to us freely you've given us your grace you were poured out your blood is poured out on our behalf to bring us into the family And so in light of that, help us to be a people that are committed to following you, empowered by your grace. And God, I ask that you would do that, that you would continue to build, Jesus, you would continue to build your church universal and your local church here that is Cross Point Winter Park, and that you might use us to see our communities transformed by the power of the gospel. God, for your glory and our joy, we commit these things to you in Jesus' good name. Amen.